Chapter 10, Organization for Psychological Warfare Big jobs require big organizations. Eight billion leaflets were dropped in the Mediterranean and European theaters of operations alone under General Eisenhower's command. That is enough to have given every man, woman, and child on Earth four leaflets. And this figure, large as it is, does not include leaflets dropped in all the other theaters of war by ourselves, our allies, and our enemies. It does not include the B-29 leaflet raids on Japan in which hundreds of tons of thin paper leaflets were dropped. Huge American newspapers were developed, edited, printed, and delivered to our allies and to enemy troops. One of these, Parachute News, Rakasan, attained a circulation of 2 million copies per run. This was in the Southwest Pacific. In other parts of the upper Burmese jungle and Tibetan borderland where no newspaper was ever distributed before, the 14th Air Force distributed a Japanese newspaper, Jisei, along with picture sheets for illiterate tribesmen. In getting at the enemy, the United States printed leaflets, cartoons, pamphlets, newspapers, posters, books, magazines. In black operations, enough fabrications were perpetrated to keep the FBI busy for a thousand years. Movies in all forms, commercial, amateur, all-known widths, sound and silent, even lantern slides, went out all over the world. Radio talked on all waves in almost every language and code. Loudspeakers, souvenirs, candy, matches, nylon stockings, pistols you could hide in your mouth, sewing threads, salt, phonograph records, and baby pictures streamed out over the world. Much of this was necessarily waste. In the larger waste of war, it appears almost frugal when taken in relation to the results thought to have been achieved. Every American theater commander, given the choice of using psychological warfare or not, as he chose, did choose to use it. Every major government engaged in the war used psychological warfare, along with a number of assorted private characters, some of whom later founded governments. The sacred government of the Dalai Lama in Forbidden Lhasa undertook a neat little maneuver in limited overt propaganda, when it printed a brand new set of stamps for presentation to President Roosevelt, the Inner Mongols were propagandized by the Outer Mongols. The Grand Duchy of Luxembourg broadcast against the Reich. Psychological warfare proliferated so much as to change the tone, if not the character, of the war. General Eisenhower wrote, at the end of the European operations, that psychological warfare had developed as a specific and effective weapon of war. The organization of psychological warfare was as much a problem as the operation. It overlaps military, naval, diplomatic, press, entertainment, public relations, police power, espionage, commercial, educational, and subversive operations. Almost every nation involved had extreme difficulty in fitting these new powers and unknown processes into the accepted frame of government, and almost every national solution was different. The British and the Japanese achieved a considerable degree of unification. The Americans, Nazis, and Russians were hampered by the number of competing agencies. The French were burdened through most of the war by an excess of governments. The Chinese did things in their own formal but offhand manner. The Nationalist Party carried on information functions for the Chinese government, while the Communist guerrilla authorities carried on functions for the Communist Party. Figure number 39, Leaflet Production, Military Presses. The machines shown are Davidson presses, widely used by the Americans in all theaters of war. The unit shown is Psychological Warfare Branch during the late operations. The leaflet being run off is addressed to both Filipino guerrillas and Japanese troops, facilitating a difficult three-way operations whereby Japanese are told to surrender to Filipinos, Filipinos told not to kill surrendering Japanese, and Americans instructed to receive prisoners from Filipinos. Figure number 40. Leaflet production. Rolling. When round bombs were used, the leaflets had to be rolled into round packages to fit. 
40,000 leaflets could be packed into one bomb, and a Mitchell bomber could carry 17 such bombs. Figure 41. Leaflet distribution, attaching fuses. Package leaflets must spread out. Bundles of paper which fall intact make little impact on the enemy unless they hit him in the head. Their subsequent employment is rarely related to propaganda. To be effective, leaflets must scatter. World War II saw the adaptation of various scattering devices, of which the most effective was the barometric fuse, shown here. The others included self-timing packages, slip strings which unwrapped the package in the air, and a belly tank which fed leaflets out at any desired speed, either in a continuous stream or in bursts. End of figures 39-41 through 41. The lower down the echelon, the nearer the armies of the world came to standardizing psychological warfare organization. They did this for the same reason that they all organize into regiments instead of centuries, cohorts, or tribes. Modern war is a self-standardizing process if the enemy experience is to be copied, enemy techniques improved, allied assistance accepted, and military practice kept up to world standards. Psychological warfare units needed printing and radio sections. To service these sections, they all needed intelligence analysis offices. To distribute their materials, they all needed agents and liaisons. Black propaganda organization varied more than did white, but it was amazing to Americans, uncovering Japanese subversive operations units, to see how much the Japanese organizations resembled their own. Figure number 42. Leaflet distribution. Packing the boxes. Sometimes boxes were used instead of bombs. These, being square, facilitated the packing process, since the rectangular packages could be used just as they came out of the print shop. The fuses attached to the package, not the box. Figure number 43. Leaflet distribution. Loading the boxes. Boxes were built to fit the bomb bays. Boxes were opened, one after the other, by a trip lever. Each box can be emptied in turn, giving the pilot the opportunity to select more than one target. Figure number 44. Leaflet distribution. Bombs at the airfield. Leaflet bombs, filled with rolls such as those shown in figure 40, are delivered to the bomber. The scene shown is somewhere in England. Officers and men picked up British slang for leaflet operations and called such missions niggling. Figure number 45. Leaflet distribution. Loading the bombs. The bombs were loaded as shown. The entire bomb dropped out of the plane and was disintegrated in the air by a small explosive charge. No illustration can do justice to the sight of such a bomb in the actual dropping, since the leaflets tend to look scattered or to disappear under normal flight conditions. Army motion picture films preserve the process for the official record, however. Figure number 46. Leaflet distribution. The final result. Search of prisoners provided a fair, accurate test of how the leaflets took effect. Sometimes, surrender leaflets actually came to have black market value. Enemy officers prohibited the carrying of allied surrender leaflets, since they knew that a soldier who had one in his pocket or hidden in his clothes was halfway or more through the psychological process of surrendering. Here a German hands in a leaflet to his American captor. End of figures 42 through 46. National Propaganda Organizations At the national level, the psychological warfare facilities were part of their national governments. Neither the Axis nor the United Nations developed supranational psychological facilities. The closest thing to international agencies were the American-British coordination facilities under the authority of the Combined Chiefs of Staff, along with that mysterious force which in the latter part of the war impelled Russian-occupied countries to sound amazingly much like Moscow. Short of preparing a textbook for political science study, explaining each of the governments and the location of its intelligence and information functions, it would be impossible to explain in any detail how each of the systems worked. Even between governments having the same general political orientation, 
The improvised war agencies were different. And in the same government, the practices of World War I were not carried over into World War II. Some description of the American psychological warfare may be warranted, chiefly as a means of showing how a simple task can be accomplished even with intricate and confused organizations. The Japanese system, on paper the best of them all, though weak in field operations and control, may be outlined for sake of contrast. Figure number 47. Consolidation Propaganda. The Movie Band. Consolidation of friendly, neutral, or hostile civilians in an area of operations can become a vitally important function. During the North African operations, this movie van showed newsreels and documentary films to the local people. Similar vans were used in Italy, France, Holland, Belgium, Germany, Austria, and other areas. End of figure number 47. American Psychological Warfare Agencies the American Army failed to establish its authority and leadership in the field of psychological warfare despite its creation of the Psychological Warfare Branch under G2. In large part, this was a matter of practical politics and of personalities. The United States government as a whole and the successive administrations of President Roosevelt acquired tremendous administrative vitality, but at the same time permitted the older constitutional agencies to lose ground to their newly founded rivals. Had an administrative purist and traditionalist been in the White House instead of a bold government experimenter, the logical creation of a psychological warfare facility would have paralleled the later creation of SWNCC, State War Navy Coordinating Committee. From the purely theoretical standpoint, it would have been far sounder to put national policy formulation, White House and Congress, foreign policy formulation, state, strategic propaganda, state, war, and navy, into a single administrative entity than to create a new federal agency with improvised procedures, improvised security, and an improvised staff. However, the state, war, and navy departments, at the very opening of our war, were overworked and understaffed. Many of the senior personnel regarded psychological warfare with downright suspicion, and propaganda was regarded as a dirty name for a dirty and ineffectual job. Hence, the old line agencies let pass the opportunity for establishing initial control. Figure number 48. Consolidation Propaganda. Posters. An American soldier pastes American posters over Nazi ones while a French crowd looks on. The crowd is pretty typical as to size and content, but a thousand such crowds will cover an entire town. The poster operation shown was conducted by the Psychological Warfare Division of Schaefe. End of figure number 48. Subsequent experience suggests that the use of existing facilities and existing agencies wherever possible instead of new ones imparts stability, discipline, and morale, and lowers the organizational friction common to all new political agencies, especially to instrumentalities in so controversial a field as propaganda. On the chart shown, for instance, it would not have mattered whether the psychological warfare facility, whatever its name, were put for housekeeping purposes under the State, War, Navy Department, or the Office for Emergency Management. The essential requirement would have been to use the State Department men for jobs that involved determining foreign policy, military men for tasks of a military nature, and naval for Navy work, and to recruit only after cadres had been established. The sponsorship of psychological warfare by one, anyone, of the old line departments might have slowed down the feverish tempo of reorganization, quarrels, cabals, internal struggles for power, and clashes with other federal agencies which were so characteristic of OWI, and its colleague organizations. Figure number 49. Consolidation Propaganda. Photo Exhibit. When newsprint is short, a photo exhibit has great appeal to civilians. In backwards countries, people sometimes waited their turn to get a chance to see the American pictures. Even in Cherbourg, the French city shown, these passers-by are showing a very real interest in the picture display. End of figure 49.
The actual conduct of psychological warfare was shown in Chart 1. No official authority exists for such a chart, the author bases it on his own observation and experience. Only agencies themselves originating psychological warfare materials are shown. Relationships between state, war, and navy were stable, but were frequently bypassed. For example, the Zacharias broadcasts, which were our biggest political warfare experiment, did not go to the State Department until after they had started. Relationships between OSS and other agencies were erratic and cloaked in extraordinary but irregular security. The OWI ran for most purposes as an autonomous group, with occasional reference to state, navy, and war departments. The president, in his individually official capacity, was apt to improvise psychological warfare operations of high importance, without warning his subordinates of what was coming. Paper knife made of human Japanese bone, the unconditional surrender formula. The White House staff sometimes worked through channels, sometimes not. The Harvard professor, who advised on inflation, was simultaneously involved with psychological warfare on continental Asia. The Secretary of the Treasury openly discussed what he would like to do with Germany in terms which the Nazi radio naturally conveyed to its own people. Within the OWI itself, the overseas operation was separated from the domestic, the broadcasters from the planners, the outposts from everybody else during much of the war. But the job was done. Success was not due to the formal structure of the Office of War Information, see charts 5 and 6. No administrative formula could have transcended such governmental confusion. It was owing to the fact that all the people just described, who went around with the best will in the world most of the time, minding one another's business, did in the end achieve effective results. The common denominator behind them was not the authority of the president, the discipline of the Democratic Party, or the casually designed, casually overlooked formal lines of authority. The common denominator was American civilization itself. Had we been deeply disunited, this ramshackle structure would have collapsed into chaos. But there was a broad concurrence, a sense of cooperativeness, goodwill and good temper. A German, Russian, or Japanese bureaucrat would have gone mad in the wartime mazes of the federal system. A Chinese would probably have felt very much at home, but would have polished up the titles and honorifics a little. The difference between our governmental organization and that of our enemies lay in the fact that to us the T.O. were something that could be used when convenient and could, without breach of faith or law, be short-circuited when convenient. Word was passed around, material exchanged, coordination affected in ways which could not be shown on any imaginable chart. It was neither a merit nor a defect, but simply an American way of doing things. This characteristic has the effect, however, of making after-the-fact studies quite unrealistic. There is not much from the formal records and the formal charts which conveys the actual tone of governmental operations in terms of propaganda. Study of World War II organization, for the sake of research and planning against possible future war, would not be very profitable unless delved into the concrete experience of individuals. The formal outlines mean nothing. They are positively deceptive unless the actual controls and operations are known. Mr. Warburg makes it plain in his book that he thinks little of Mr. Elmer Davis' conception of his job. He does not mention that Mr. Sherwood, theoretically Mr. Davis' subordinate, ran foreign operations without much reference to Mr. Davis or to any other part of the federal government. Since Mr. Sherwood was closer to the White House than was Mr. Davis, this important consideration escapes being recorded on the chart. Foreign operations were actually autonomous. Examples of how things really worked, as opposed to how they looked as though they worked, could be multiplied forever. But the soundest way of finding out sober, judicious opinion will necessarily await the writing of autobiographies and memoirs by the people concerned. With these sweeping reservations in mind, it is worth noting the organization of OWI, internal. The domestic operations branch can be dismissed with brief mention. 
It proved to be the object of profound suspicion on the part of many members of Congress, and its function was to simulate and assist inward media of public information in support of the war effort. The domestic operations branch never superseded other U.S. government informational services, state, agriculture, treasury, war, and so on, so that it was the wartime supplement to the governmental supplement to the regular news and information system, which remained private. This precluded intimate coordination of domestic and overseas propaganda, and rendered illusory any hope that domestic propaganda, as eavesdropped by our enemies, could be used as an instrument of war. The overseas operations branch had two basic missions. Within the United States, it was the operating and controlling agency for government-owned or government-leased worldwide shortwave. For actual overseas purposes, it was the rear echelon of both the Navy and Army theater facilities and of its own OWI outposts. The outposts were themselves under OWI for certain purposes. For other purposes, they were subject to the chief of mission, ambassador, minister, or charge of the U.S. in the foreign country, and still other purposes under the American military commander having local jurisdiction. OWI Delhi, for example, was under the office of the American High Commissioner in India. Also under the rear echelon headquarters of the commanding general, United States Army Forces, China Burma India Theater, also under OWI New York for supply of its printed materials, most personnel and needed presses, under OWI San Francisco for its supply of its wireless news, and under OWI Washington for general policy, hiring and firing, and everything else. In terms of its own global radio, OWI prepared planning and control materials in Washington and relayed these to New York and San Francisco. The radio facilities in these cities then transmitted the material overseas, Though the first three years of the war, the precise nature of the Washington control was in question. Enforcement remained a perplexing problem, and coordination between planning and execution remained unsolved in part. By the spring and summer of 1945, OWI had solved most of these problems, chiefly by means of circulating the Area 1, 2, and 3 chiefs to the operating offices. When personal relations were satisfactory, as in the instance of Mr. Owen Lattimore, chief in OWI San Francisco, Mr. George Taylor, Chief of Far East in Washington, and Mr. F. M. Fisher, Chief of China Outpost in Chongqing, all of them China experts, coordination might be difficult, but was never exasperating. End of section 18.